seeing someone doing what you want to do that looks like you is tremendously, I think, affirming, you know, um, especially if you've never seen that person before. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. Dr. Hindatu Mohammed bought Allendale Veterinary Clinic in Austin, Texas in 2016. As far as she knows, she's the only Black female veterinary practice owner in Austin. She's used to being the only Black person or one of few people of color in the veterinary medicine space. That was the case for her when she practiced veterinary medicine in New Jersey and San Francisco. Her personal experiences are supported by data from the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges. Of all the U.S. veterinary students in the class of 2020, just 3% are Black. As a result, she has often felt out of place, but her unwavering passion for helping animals and thick skin has kept her focused and undeterred. She's been set on caring for animals since she was a child. So let's start there, from the very beginning. So I was born in Nigeria. My parents, my family moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, basically in the 80s to uh, my dad at that time was um, invited to get a PhD at the University of Pittsburgh. And so initially he actually came by himself and left my mother and uh, my siblings and I there. And then once I think he was able to sort of establish that this was a good place and everything brought us all there. So, so I grew up in, um, I, you know, I was born in that country, but I spent most of my life in, in of course, Pittsburgh in this country. And so um, it's very interesting to have that experience of growing up, you know, in this uh, dual culture type of situation where basically we didn't have any family members in the United States aside from my parents and my siblings. And so all of our relatives are back in Nigeria and to this day are still. So, um, so, you know, there's a lot of, I think growing up with your family in this very, very far place is an interesting experience in that you, you sort of develop a connection to a lot of people that are here that are closer to you. And so I grew up, I have lots of friends that I had growing up that I was very close to that weren't, you know, that were like cousins to me, but weren't actually cousins to me. Um, And so I think growing up in you know, I wouldn't say isolation, but but growing up without that sort of like family network definitely forces you to become a lot more, a lot closer to your immediate family, the people that are around you. And of course, also to be, you know, to seek out these family connections elsewhere. And so I think growing up in, um, in that environment definitely made me, it, it sort of made me a lot, a friendly person, and, and probably I would have been anyway, but I think because I was always looking for cousins, I was always looking for people to connect with, you know, and so that, that just, that's just kind of my, one of my earliest memories is just always wanting to like be out, playing with people, looking for people to hang out with, and, and, and that's definitely, uh, I think, you know, people would say that is maintained to this day, I'm always looking for friends, yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I very much appreciated that experience of growing up as an immigrant in this country because I, you know, for me had this very, very, two very, very different exposures to, to life, early life. I had the exposure that I was getting at home with my parents and this, you know, we are, um, we are Muslim, we are African, we are, you know, so this is a very 
very traditional, very, uh, very strict upbringing. And then I had the experience of being a kid in America, you know, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the eighties. Like I remember we would, uh, you know, I laugh now because my kids in summertime go to summer camp and everything's really structured in the summertime. We were just out. Like, it was like, okay, there's no school. We'll see you later. You know? And so we were just out doing all kinds of things. Um, just living that, that, you know, like I said, that eighties kid lifestyle. And, um, so being an American kid and coming home to a Nigerian family was like a constant sort of yin and yang, you know, uh, I would see the way that my kid, my pair, uh, my siblings rather, not siblings, my friends would be able to be and do things they could do. And then I would come home, my parents were like, nope, none of that's happening. So, you know, I remember not really being able to go see like movies and doing things that seem really benign, yeah. you know, to, to everyone else. But, but my parents were like, no, they, you know, they were, I think, wary of a lot of things that were foreign to them. And at that time, everything was right. Like everything was foreign to them. So um, I think that they pretty early on knew that um, raising kids here with the ideals and sort of uh, with the ways that they were raised themselves would be really challenging. And I think that they tried for as long as possible to really try to mimic that upbringing um, before ultimately realizing it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I think one, one major uh, struggle or challenge for growing up in this country was the language you know barrier when when we first came here in the 80s people told my parents uh, you know you really need to have your children speak english like you should you should not teach them their language you should not encourage them to speak their language because you really want them to assimilate you want them to be american kids and so you know i think my parents not really knowing any better uh followed that advice and didn't really encourage us to speak our language and and you know now we don't speak our language very well at all um, my sister, I'd say, was speaks speaks it the most. My I speak it then the the, the next <laughs> amount, and then my youngest brother doesn't speak it hardly at all. Okay, so that's that, that's always a challenge for us. Would Would you hear your parents speak the language with each other? And what's the language called? It's Hausa, H A U S A. It's uh, and yeah, they they speak to spoke it to each other, and they would speak it to us as well. Um, you know, particularly, I mean, the joke is that I know how to how to swear in you know, yeah I know I know how to tell off a kid that's not behaving properly in house I can tell you that yeah. but uh I do you know so yeah they would they would speak it to us uh here and there and there's certain certainly words too that that to this day I don't even really know you know I only only use the house of word of it not not the American word but um uh but yeah no they would they would they in the in the beginning they spoke to us a lot more and I think as we got older they they spoke it less and less and I think part of that too had to do with the fact that my mother, when we first came here, didn't speak English at all. And so that she had to, you know, as she learned more English, I think she spoke more English to us. Okay. And so it sounds like your dad, I mean, getting into university of Pittsburgh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he must've known a decent amount of English, right? Yes. My father actually, uh, because he was a teacher and sort of educator, he was initially, I think he first got a master's at university of Edinburgh. So, before to before I was born. So he definitely had experience with being in a foreign country and getting education. So he spoke English perfectly. Just um, my mother at that time had, did not. And, and of course, all, you know, most Hausa was our first language. So when we, when, when we all came here, none of us spoke any English really. Okay. And so how old is your sister compared to you? My sister is two years older than me. Okay. And I think about how old I am. So she's, 40, <laughs> she's, she's 44 and I'm 42. Yeah. Okay. And so she knows more of the language. Does she, 
since she was a little older than you when you guys immigrated, does she remember that experience at all? I mean, she was right five. <laughs> yeah, I think she, she does remember it more so. And I think it does have to do with the fact that she, yeah, she just had more years of speaking house, house as her primary language, right? And yeah. then I had less than my, my youngest brother was, you know, a baby or my young, my brother was a baby when we came here. So he doesn't really remember it at all. But yeah, she does. She has a lot of my memories of Nigeria at that time really, I think, come from pictures, to be honest. Like, you know, I think I, I think I looked, I've looked at pictures and, and then heard about the experience and sort of put those two together. But but I think my sister actually remembers living there. for sure. OK. Mm-hmm. And so you've gone back to visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. And so what's that like? It is, it is such a culture shock, honestly. It's, it's, it's a, such a mix of emotions because, you know, I have this huge family on both sides. So, so being Hausa, being Muslim, you know, polygamy is common in our culture. So I have many uh, uncles who have, you know, multiple wives. And so that's multiple, yeah. you know, more children, more cousins. And so I, when I tried to do a tally of how many cousins, and I believe I have something like 130 cousins on my father's side and something like 40 cousins on my mother's side. So it's, it's a huge, huge number. So, you know, you can imagine how connected can you possibly feel to, you know, 200 people that you see every couple of years, right? Um, yeah. And that's just your cousins alone. So going back is always really an interesting experience because like I said, it, it is, it, part of it is, it seems so foreign, you know, the, the language, the, the, the lifestyle, the, the, you know, the norms uh, are all very foreign. And then there's a part of it that also, you know, I go back and I feel, oh, like, I feel like I, this is a place of home. This feels, you know, I can't really explain it, but this is, this is, this is my home. And I, and I just feel completely welcomed by everyone there, completely embraced by everyone there. Um, you know, it, people are always so happy to see us there. It's like, you know, you feel like a celebrity because you go there <laughs> then people are like, oh, you know, come see my, you know, you end up spending, we spend up, we end up spending so much of our time just going around and visiting other people. And so, you know, my uncle's co-worker from work wants to meet us because he heard we're coming to town. And so it's like, we spend a lot of time going around to see people and, and just feeling super, super welcome. But, but I do think, uh, I do spend a lot of time there trying to adjust and fit in you know because mm-hmm. because the person that I am is so different than than the way that a lot of my uh, cousins and you know aunts and uncles you know they just it just the things that I say the way that I talk I mean everything is different and spend a lot of time trying to sort of fit in and, and it's exhausting actually at times it's exhausting and not to mention the fact that um going back does require a fair amount of of work because you 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 know there's an expectation and I think anyone who has relatives in another country can kind of speak on this is that there's this perception of life in America as being very 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 wealthy very very privileged and in a lot of ways it is absolutely compared to life in a lot of other countries but so but I think with that comes this expectation of like bringing gifts and bringing uh, uh-huh. goods and bringing you know uh, presents for people and so there is a lot of time and energy that we spend whenever we go back, bringing things for people and, um, you know, trying to, trying to make people feel happy, feel, feel appreciated. And, 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 and they do, they do appreciate it, but it, it definitely, it's not like I could just say like, okay, I'm just going to Nigeria tomorrow. It's like, it's a big old thing to prepare for. You know? it's <laughs> yeah. Definitely a lot of work. So had you ever thought about what would my life be if my parents, if we didn't move there to, to the U.S.? I talk about that all the time. 
I truly do, just because, especially growing up in this country from a young age, I think that, I think just about everything about me has been influenced by being in this country. And some of those are good things, and some of those are bad things, right? But, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I think about that all the time. I think that I would, uh, you know, I certainly would be married. I wouldn't be married to, you know, the person who I married to, this white Jewish man, you know? <laughs> I probably wouldn't have married him if I had stayed in Nigeria, you know? Yeah. Would I even be a veterinarian if I had stayed in Nigeria, you know? Um, I also wonder what it would have been like to grow up around a big family. That's something I've always been envious of people of in this country, people who have, like, family reunions or who, you know, have Thanksgiving where they have like their 20 family members or 30 family members. And uh, I'm sure those people are like, oh, not that great. <laughs> but I've always, I've always been, you know, just sort of envious of what, what it's like to grow up in this huge village of people. And, and I think to a certain extent, there's always been a part of me that has felt a bit of a loss of not having that, you know, because yeah. if I did, you know, I mean, if I, uh, case in point, there's, you know, it's very common in our culture to, if you have a child to someone will send one of their children to just live with you, you know, like one of their older children. Like when my mom first had uh, my sister, some, one of her daughters, one of her sisters came to live with us. So basically my grandmother sent one of her older children who was still, you know, in the house and to live with my mother and to do her dishes and to take, do the laundry. And like that kind of support, you know, the sort of the idea that it takes a village to raise a child, like that doesn't exist here. And it absolutely, I mean, I think people that have that absolutely benefit from it. I think the children benefit from it. I think the parents benefit from it. So, so yeah, I, I, I do, you know, I do think about like, wow, what would that have been like to raise children in that environment where you aren't just like you and this one other person are just struggling to, to make, to make it work, you know, where you have aunts and uncles and cousins and all kinds of people and grandmothers and grandparents, you know, to, to sort of help out. Yeah. So where would you guys find community? So when we were younger, you know, because my father was uh, a student, he, I think, naturally sent, tended to gravitate towards other students, other grad students. And at that time, there were a lot more foreign grad students um, than it seems to me, you know, at least at least from Nigeria that there are now. So, for example, we uh, in our apartment building, I know we had these families from Indonesia, we had families from Malaysia, we had families from India that were all going to school and therefore all having the same experience as us. You know, they have young kids in school. They're trying to raise these kids in America that aren't quite American, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we did, we had, um, and I think part of that too also happened uh, by our connection with the Muslim community. You know, Muslims are by, are, are, are very international, you know? And so, we had lots of friends from Egypt, from um, Saudi Arabia, from Pakistan, from lots of other lots of other countries. And so, so yeah, our community growing up comprised was mostly comprised of other Muslims and also other grad students who just I think people who were were like us, kind of you know trying to adapt to this really strange country that they found themselves living in, <laughs> yeah. and trying to navigate raising children that were nothing like they were as when they were growing up you know so let's talk about veterinary medicine <laughs> yes I almost forgot that's what we we're talking about I was like this is so cool <laughs> yeah. like oh yeah that so when did you know you wanted to be a veterinarian I I have such a clear memory of uh being nine or ten years old and uh so my father was always very, um, just in general, in our culture and in our family, education was always promoted, you know, and, and, and um, 
makes sense, right? You have a father who's getting a PhD. Of course, he realizes the value of education, but he was a, he was a teacher. My grandfather was a teacher. So just a long history of it. But um, so my father from an early age sort of was saying, would encourage me uh, to do pick a career in the sciences. And in fact, was like, you know, you should be a doctor so you can take care of me when I'm older. And so of course, you know, as a kid, you're like, okay, yeah, I, that's what I'll do then. And, and I remember uh, at one point being outside and playing and uh, playing in the dirt and, you know, I inadvertently in the process injured an, an ant. And then I was trying to fix it and put it back together, which obviously you can imagine was a disaster. And I just remember feeling just a tremendous sense of guilt and, and feeling, gosh, that's, wow, that is, you know, I, felt, I just felt so bad for the ant. And I also just felt really like responsible for the care of that ant. And so trying to fix it. And I just, and it, I, and I just remember in that moment being like, gosh, you know, animals really need people to look out for them. And it was just that simple thought. And, and, and yeah. at that point I was just like, they need someone to advocate for them. Like they need someone to take care of them because they are defenseless and they, they need people to help them. And that was when it started. Like I, I, I do, cause we didn't have pets growing up, you know? Yeah. Uh, we didn't have pets. I didn't get my first pet until I was 14. So it wasn't as though I grew up, grew up around animals. It was just that, I think that early notion of just the importance of being compassionate to animals and, and it stuck with me. And so I just ever since, you know, everyone, every, probably every vet has a story, but like then after that, it's always like, oh, this bird is injured. I'm going to bring it in the house. And of course, now <laughs> I laugh at like the idea of us bringing pigeons, like pigeons have like, they carry so many diseases. It's like, yeah. we would just be like, oh, we're take this pigeon in our house and we're going to fix it. You know, <laughs> my parents were just like, okay. <laughs> so, but yeah, doing stuff like that all the time and like looking out for injured wildlife and taking them to the rehab place. And that, 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 you know, it, it pretty much went on from, from an early age. It was just something that once I got it in my head, I was just like, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of animals. I'm going to advocate for them because they need they need people out there to, to look out for them and, and and that's yeah that's when it started and it just yeah. never went away I I laugh because so often people will say oh you're a veterinarian I wanted to be a veterinarian when I was a kid and it's almost like this thing of like but then I grew out of it yeah. <laughs> and I guess I just never grew out of it wow so if you could would you have named that aunt it just seems like it's so special oh my gosh that aunt has influenced me it like this the, the whole trajectory of my life basically <laughs> I, I i wish i would have. i wish i could have honestly if i could what i would do is i'd apologize to that aunt i'd be like i am so sorry that i dismembered you i i wish that i knew aunt surgery but i didn't yeah. and i still don't actually <laughs> <laughs> So were you drawn to watching any of those Pixar movies, A Bug's Life and Ants? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I just like anything Pixar does. Although I was laughing this morning the other day that like, I think the Pixar movies right now only exist to make us cry because they always have some like really emotional, like, yeah. you know, <laughs> sad moment. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I love, I just, I love, I especially love about them that they add this sort of personality you know to animals yeah. in a way that uh has always really been fascinating to me like what if what if animals really know and think more than you know then have more feelings and emotions and thoughts and, and you know personalities than we than we give them credit for i think that they do personally but uh yeah i've never actually talked to a veterinarian about what they think about the animals personalities and like disney and pixar movies yeah i, <laughs> I those like are the best parts to me like i i because that's just it just it feeds into what I would so like to be true, which is the fact that animals have deep 
personalities and senses of humor and you know and not everybody right like not every person has a sense of humor not every person has a great personality so certainly not every dog does do uh, does but like i meet plenty of cats dogs that i just think man this this animal is hilarious and this animal gets it and this animal is really funny and this animal is really caring and this animal is really you know uh observant and all these things that that yeah that you don't think of necessarily attributing uh, to animals but i think that they, they 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 do exhibit those those qualities for sure yeah so to get on to a more serious note um when did you realize that people of color were not represented in the profession or you know not not as much yeah i mean i think the minute i started to hang out in the profession the minute i started to to look at it period i you know i mentioned that we didn't have a pet until i was 14 uh, I, I, we had a cat finally after years and years and years of me advocating for any animal, uh, we finally got a cat. And, um, I remember one time that cat, he had some plumbing work in the basement or something. And so that's where the cat hung out a lot of times. And so one time, um, after we had some plumbing done, the cat developed this horrible, horrible, like rash or issue where he basically like his slough the skin all on his belly. And it was, you know, I'm guessing some chemical burden. So. Um, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so we, I, you know, at that age was like, well, we have to, we have to figure something out. And so I remember calling around to clinics in, in the area and finding one that was kind of further away that'd be willing to sort of like take, you know, this cat in as a sliding scale situation. So I remember getting on a bus with this cat and taking him all, like it felt like it was a 40 minute bus ride to get treated. And I remember just being there and being, first of all, the only black person in the whole building. So client and course staff, right? I remember feeling very uh, out of place, but also determined to not let that like, deter, you know, to let that change me from what I came to do, which is fix my cat. And that's probably been like, if that, if I had to summarize my my career in <laughs> veterinary medicine, it's that would be, you know, out of feeling out of place, but determined to not let that get in the way of what I came to do, you know. And so, so yeah, they 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 were very nice enough to. Um, give me this treatment plan for my cat that I was able to do at home so I didn't have to you know, spend a lot of money there and I took him home and you know had to give him these really detailed medical baths and treatments for a week but he got better yeah and that was also a very pivotal I think experience for me too because it was just like realizing that like you know I can have you know I can do I can help I can actually I could help this cat you know I could help other cats <laughs> yeah and how old were you I guess I must have been 14, yeah, because we got him okay. when I was 13, and that was shortly after we got him, so yeah. I remember being, like, just young enough that they were, because <laughs> I went by myself, too, you know. Uh, I remember just being just young enough that they were, like, I mean, I guess we'll talk to you, but do you have a <laughs> Yeah, you're a mature 14-year-old. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so you felt out of place. Had your parents ever spoken to you about hey you know you're black in the u.s you might experience i i don't know exactly what what that would be was that ever a conversation it never was and i think that you know i think my experience is so different in a lot of ways to uh you know african-american kids growing up right because um i you know i have to imagine that there's much more of that that focus and, and discussion but for us, you know, my parents were still of this mindset of like, you know, you work hard, you 
do what you need to do and that's all that matters you get your education etc cetera, etc cetera. you know what i mean and i remember very clearly too in in growing up like having other kids say to me like oh you're not like the other black kids you know you're good because you're you're african or you're from you know like that that have that distinction being made very early on to me that oh you're not like those other kids you're different and i remember being like i don't know what that means and i you know <laughs> i'm having this very vague sense that like the this difference was uh complimentary complimentary to me but but you know not so to the other people you know feeling kind of a sense of like oh i think that you're trying to I think that's a negative thing you're saying about other black kids and I don't really understand it, but I don't, th I don't think I like it. It makes me uncomfortable, you know? Um, but yeah. so, my, but my parents know never talk to us about, about this experience of, you know, being black in this country that, I mean, that certainly happened a lot later, but growing up, that was not a, a conversation that I, but I, that I remember, you know, having with them, but it's definitely something that became very quickly apparent to me, you know, just in school. And, and like I said, to just having this, uh, line trying or this distinction trying to be made between me and other black kids it was, it was very interesting that is really interesting i don't think i would have thought about that yeah and it happened a lot it happened a lot i mean you know i mean i think it, it there was also the, the, i think that otherness was made i was made to feel that not only by white kids but also by black kids you know i think um i remember having you know, get my hair braided and have this, have all these sort of traditional Nigerian styles. And, you know, the black kids would kind of be like, well, what's that? And, you know, there would, there would be, there was definitely ridicule being made of me by them, you know, and yeah. by the white kids, am I having this funny name? So, you know, you just get it, you get it from all different sides. And, and there's, there's, I'm sure people have spoken about this before, but there's this feeling that like, you know, you're not really sure who, who and where you belong, right? Who, who, with whom you belong and where because uh you know the white kids are telling you that you're different because you're black and then the black kids are telling you they're different because you're african you know <laughs> yeah it's like am i enough like can, yeah. can you guys just be me for who i am yeah no but i mean i think i mean i think that's also sort of always led me to like find the other misfits and find the other people that don't quite you know that don't mm -hmm. quite fit in you know because i that that's been a big experience for me throughout my life as well is this not quite being not only, not only not quite fitting in, but also not keep be, not being being what people expect me to be, you know, mm -hmm. or having having a preconceived notion about what I'm going to be like based on my name, based on my upbringing, based on my color, based on a lot of different things, you know. Yeah, when we spoke earlier, you know, so you're the only black female practice owner in Austin, Texas. Yes, that I am aware of. And so if there's another one out there that, I, that I'm not aware of, I, I apologize. Please call me so we can hang out <laughs> and start a club of probably two. But yes, I, I believe I am. I have, um, I, I, I believe I am the only. Yeah. And so you said that sometimes people come in with these biases and they're surprised and they're like, oh, you're the, you're the practice owner. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And you said sometimes it feels good to make people feel uncomfortable like you don't have any issue with that so do you want to talk a little bit about that experience yeah i think for so long you know uh people would have people make would make statements that were very clearly uh influenced by their own biases and things and i and i would you know you try to sort of like make a joke or do something to sort of make it the whole thing less awkward and i think at one point i just decided that i wasn't going to do that anymore if uh you know somebody 
comes in and is like, oh, can I, oh, well, this has happens fairly commonly. Somebody will call the clinic and say, you know, I'm calling to speak to the, the owner. Is he available? You know, that's the very first one, right? So that's always a fun one because the receptionists love to be like, well, actually she is, is uh, you know, she is not available. Exactly. And then even better when they'll do sort of a, uh, you know, sometimes this doesn't happen as much now during the pandemic, but a lot of times we'll have salespeople that will just sort of do cold calls and just stop by and and, and uh, want to come and, and you know induce themselves to the owner, you know. And I like to, you know, just yeah, I just I just enjoy seeing the look on their faces oftentimes when they're just you know. And of course, these are people that are trained to be really professional, and so they they quickly recover. But it's it's always really fun when they're just like, oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, hello. Yes, you're the owner, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, yes, I am. Joe, and I, and honestly, I, I don't blame them. I don't blame them. It, they're yeah. mentioned. I may be the only one in town, so it's it's not as something that that uh, that they see very often. But just uh, I think the fact that um, still a surprise, you know, why is it surprising? Why 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 wouldn't I be an owner? You know, right. why, why wouldn't I be? You know, the the veterinary profession is overwhelmingly female. Why is it strange that this black female is the owner of this practice? You know, so I just, I just, um, I really love. Uh, I think when I first purchased the practice, I was very interested in trying to sort of be below the radar in a lot of ways because I didn't want people to feel like a lot was going to change because it was owned by this new person, et cetera, et cetera. And now I think I've come the other direction where I really want to be as visible as possible because I realized that um, you know the more people can see someone like me doing this the less strange it will seem the less foreign it will seem you know the less surprising it will be when they when they meet me you know so uh so yeah i really i i think i it's really important for me to, to, to sort of not only just honestly for uh younger you know a very a very important thing for me is to sort of be a presence be a mentor be a be a visible to you know younger children of color females of color who are you know wanting to be veterinarians or wanting to be practice owners or just honestly business ownership, modeling business ownership for that community in general is really important for me, right? But um, I think it's also really important to be visible to other, to white people, you know, to literally anyone who who doesn't think this is possible or doesn't, doesn't see this as a norm for them. Yeah. Okay. So I read in your bio that after you graduated um, with a bachelor's in science that you took a little break to be a teacher. And uh, you taught drama, which I know you really like the musical Hamilton. I do. I love Hamilton so much. <laughs> um, so, so tell me about this. I, I mean, I would love to talk to you all about Hamilton, but unfortunately. We could just make this a Hamilton podcast. Like, we'll talk about veterinary medicine later. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell me about this time in your life. You were a teacher for several years. Like, why did you choose to take that time before going to vet school and specifically being a teacher? as I mentioned, I'd wanted to be a veterinarian forever, right? For since I was yeah. young and I went to college with that intention. And, you know, I was really, really, I had a really hard time early in college. Um, the pre-med, pre-vet sort of lifestyle and track was really, really a shock for me. Not only just in how rigorous it was, and I think I expected that, but also just how, uh, competitive and kind of uncaring it was it was a lot of really intense people with these really intense goals and here I was like well I just really like science and animals you know and so I was really unhappy my first year of college of undergrad I, I was uh, 
you know, school was hard and that's again, that's, that's normal. But I think I just felt like really isolated from a lot of people. I felt uh, just, yeah, I just didn't, I didn't, I, I, I felt like I wanted to get out of the rat race. And so I, I thought to myself, well, is the only reason, if the only reason I'm doing this is because I want to go to vet school, you know, maybe I'll need to go to vet school right away. And so pretty much, I think my second year in uh, college, I decided to, I kind of made a decision then that I was not going to apply to vet school right out of school, out of undergrad, just because I had already at that time so many student loans. And so that in, in itself was just, you know, a, a compelling reason to try to like, try to pay some of them back before entering yet another sort of set of loans. Um, and I think I just felt like, you know, I'm going to still take these science classes, but I don't, I don't know if I'm going to apply right away. I wanted to take that, um, I wanted to give myself some, some flexibility, you know, because the way it works is you, you know, if you're going to apply right away, you have to take this class by this time, get this class and then do this thing. You know, everything is so regimented. And I just did not like that. Decided that I wasn't going to apply to that school right away. And then that freed me up to take classes I was really interested in as opposed to just things I was required to take. And so I took a lot of sociology classes. I took some education classes. I took, um, yeah, a lot of classes of just material that was really interesting to me. And, um, it was also cool because, you know, I was an animal science major and a lot of my animal science classes, a lot of the people taking those classes came from very rural backgrounds. And just to be honest, I just did not feel welcome in that community. You know, I just, it, I didn't connect with people from that background and I didn't feel welcome in that, in that community. I just did not feel, I felt very much like an outsider. Whereas taking these classes in these other areas, you know, I was seeing people that looked more like me or had experiences more like me. So it was part of that too, as part of just really needing to, you know, in this already isolating experience, needing to find people that I could feel better connected with. And so, so all of that basically led me to, to taking these really classes, different classes. And, and, and my junior year in college, um, or maybe it was actually my senior year in college, I heard about a program called Teach for America that um, recruits new graduates, recent college graduates to teach. And you know, of course, the funny thing about that is that like my, as I mentioned, my dad was a teacher, my grandfather was a teacher. So teaching is a, was a really, really, I mean, I had a lot of teaching in my, in my blood and it never really occurred to me until that time to, to consider it. And so I thought to myself, well, again, I do need to make some money. I need to pay some of these loans back and um, why not? And I, and I think I always thought to myself, if veterinary medicine is really something that I want to do, if it's really something that's meant to be, then I'll do it later. And if it's not, then I won't. And so I was really open to, to what this experience would be like. And I am, I'm so, so thankful that I was able to do that. I did get into the Teach for America program. I ended up being placed in Oakland, California. Um, and it was, it was such a great experience on so many levels. One, I think so much of the strengths that I bring to my current work come from being a teacher, you know, mm -hmm. having to be um, organized, having to work with, I mean, it's a lot of similar analogies, but when you're a teacher, you are serving students, right? But you have to go through their parents to provide that service. And same thing with, with, with veterinary medicine, you're serving animals, but you have to go through their owners to, to provide that service. And it's, uh, I think both require a lot of patience, a lot of compassion, and a lot of really like creative thinking, <laughs> problem solving, you know. So yeah, that was, that was a really great experience. And, and honestly, to this day, I still think about teaching and I wish that I could uh, go, go back to it in some way. And, and I think a lot of my desire to be a mentor and to work with young people again stems from that, just that love of having that role, playing that role in someone's life, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very rewarding. And I just think about the client communication, how I'm sure that experience really comes in handy. Yeah, absolutely. One, one uh, story I tell all the time is that, you know, I had uh, a student who was having a hard time throughout the semester in my class. And I was kind of constantly trying to engage the parents and trying to troubleshoot and problem solve around that and just not getting any answers or responses. And then uh, report cards come out and that student doesn't, doesn't, you know, didn't get a good grade. And so that student's uh, mother came to my classroom full of sixth graders and was just yelling at me in front of the whole class, you know, and here I am, this like 21, 22 year old, I don't even know how old I was, just sitting there being yelled at by this woman who had been trying to contact, you know, the whole time, right, to try to do something. And I remember telling my principal that story and she was just like, do you know that you don't have to let people yell at you? You know, did you know that? And I did not know that. And I, and I, and it was, you know, and it was that day that I realized like, oh yeah, that wasn't, that didn't have anything to do with me, that she's upset because of her own failings, right, because of her own, she, you know, she was not, she did not kind of, for whatever reason, she was not able to, you know, work with me up until now to help us, and now that, now it's too late, and so she feels badly about that, and, you know, and I take that with me all the time, I see all the time people, clients that will contact me because they're upset about the outcome of a case, or whatever the thing and it's rarely about you you know it's rarely about you I mean obviously you have to be willing to reflect on it and see you know was there something that did I play a role in this going so poorly or what have you but a lot of times it is like you know you don't have to yet let people yell at you you don't have to let them you know take out their own frustrations on you uh, and that's yeah that that's a lesson I learned in teaching for sure and so it's it's, it's almost impossible to get me upset like yeah. it, it really is. I mean, it's like not to say you can't, but uh, yeah. you know, is um, I, I I I often am just able to think about well, you know what, this this is not going well, and there you know a lot of this has to do with you know whatever is going on in this person's life, and it allows me to not take things personally. It also allows yeah. me to not be angry with people. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm not. You know, I, I wish you had acted differently, but I'm not. I'm not mad at you. You know, I hope. Yeah. You- you're out, whatever it is, you need to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a really admirable quality where you don't, like, hold on to things or you get attached, like, how could they have said that? And now I feel like this, so. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very hard to do. And, I mean, obviously, so much has been reported about the instances of depression and suicide in our in our profession. And I think it's because veterinarians, by and large, are people pleasers. We're perfectionists. You know, we are. Uh, we want to fix everything and everyone, right? And so, when someone comes in and is upset at you, it can ruin a veterinarian's life. I don't think people really have a sense of how upsetting it is for veterinarians to feel that they failed their clients, you know, and their people and their patients, and so. So yeah, so if I were to let every person, especially now being a business owner, if anyone's upset with anybody, I hear about it, literally, you know, I hear about everything that happens, right? So if I were to let every one of those interactions get to me, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be able to sustain this career at all. You know, it would just be too much, you know, there, there would, there, there would be no other way that I could do that and then go home and have a healthy relationship with my kids and my husband and my family, you know? So, so yeah, no, it's, it's a really important life skill that I learned from teaching. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So cheers to Teach for America. Cheers to Teach for America. Yeah. That's also where I met my husband. So double cheers for that. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So you eventually went to veterinary school at Cornell University. That's where you met Dr. Nicole Bruno. That is. Yeah. She was the year ahead of me in vet school. 
So tell me about your experience in veterinary school. Well, so for me, you know, uh, I get to vet school, I had been a teacher. I had been, you know, been a teacher in this, you know, inner city school and I'm this older student. So I kind of walk in there being like, ah, you know what, I got this. Like, I, <laughs> I don't need these people. I don't I'm just here to get education. Like it really was it's like, I already have really great friends. I'm cool. You know, I don't need to make any more. I'm just here to get education. And of course that was like, you know, completely false. I made some of the best friends of my entire, entire life in vet school. Uh -huh. People that I, to this day, consider to, like, my family. It was such a great, you know, including Nicole, you know, I mean, like, Nicole and I had so many um, wonderful drives from from school to back to New York City, because my sister was living in Queens at that time, and so Nicole's from Queens, and so, yeah, we just had, I mean, just, just I, I met some of the most amazing people there. Um, it was also, again, this real culture shock in a lot of ways, because, again, you're sort of, um, veterinary medicine tends to bring with it, uh, you know, just because of the diversity of it, a whole diversity of uh, people with respect to where they're from. You know, you get people from cities, you get people from countries, you get people who are like, you know, working on, you know, used to working with horses, used to working with cows. And that was just, I mean, that was something that again, was a huge shock to me, like having to deal with uh, my equine clients on my equine rotations and having to deal with my, uh, dairy and goat and you know she, you know all those clients too uh on my ambulatory rotations it was just a, a a big big change but i i i love vet school so much i i really am so thankful for that education i'm so thankful for having i think especially taking time off before going back to vet to school in general you realize how just what a privileged position being a student is you know your only job is to learn and you're being taught by people who are renowned in their fields you know like so because i mean i i was like i had a full-time job this is way easier <laughs> yeah um and then so you entered the workforce you went to eventually went to san francisco yeah so after i graduated um from cornell i did an internship at a, a hospital a really busy hospital in new jersey and then after that uh, moved to california because my husband's family is from oakland he wanted to at that he wanted to move back and so I worked at a practice in San Francisco, um, another busy practice there too. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that's what's what's been really cool for me about living. Uh, you know, by the way, only black person, only person of color. Well, not only person of color. There were definitely some people of color in, in the New Jersey hospital, but only only black person in both places. And we just never actually had any other black uh, coworkers in either. And the the hospital in New Jersey was like 60 doctors. I mean, a tremendously large staff of people. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, worked in San Francisco for a while, and then moved ultimately to Texas to be closer to family. And uh, and the, the the demographics remain the same no matter what. So whether I'm in upstate New York, whether I was in uh, New Jersey, whether I was in California, whether I was in Texas, there's just it's, it's, yeah, it's a, a very white profession. Yes, and I know. Many veterinarians of color have experienced microaggressions during their career. And it sounds like, you know, there's just the shock factor that you've experienced. Do you have any other thoughts about that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's really interesting because for me, I, I yeah, definitely have received those. And, you know, there's, there's so much, I think, that goes into it. I think for me, a lot of those microaggressions were around my race, uh, some of them around being female. Some of them around being young, you know. Um, I, I have noticed, and, and um, 
you know, having worked with male veterinarians in different places, there's, there are some people that you can tell them the same exact thing that a male veterinarian will tell them, but they will not believe you unless they come, you know, and I've, I've seen that directly. You know, I've had people come into, you know, I've walked into the, the room with a stethoscope on and, you know, they're just like, I'm talking to them. I even say, hi, I'm Dr. Muhammad. <laughs> but, like, they will, you know, um, I'll do my exam, I'll do everything and I'll, I'll come up with a plan and then I'll tell the technician later. So when is the doctor going to come in? <laughs> <laughs> like this, like just extreme inability to, to fathom that you, their veterinarian could be this young black female with the last name Muhammad. You know, just, it just, they were, you know, they just, they weren't able to even comprehend it, you know? So, so yeah, I think most of the time they come from that, they come in those subtle ways. And then other times, People would straight up be like, you know, um, especially this, this, I think especially happened when I would see uh, some clients that were um, primarily clients of my former boss, you know, they might say, well, well, can you ask her what she thinks? And like I said, is it because I was young? Maybe. Is it because I was black? Maybe. Is it because I just didn't like my medicine? Maybe, you know, but I think when you, you'll never know, right? And I, but I think that when you look like me and have a last name like me, you know, you spend a lot of time really just thinking, well, that could be it. But, it, you know, it goes back to, again, I feel out of place here, but I'm not going to let it deter me from what, you know, what I came to do. And what I came to do is try to help your dog. And so you are welcome to go see someone else. But here, you know, I'm going to stand firm in my recommendations for you. And I think that you have to really develop that confidence or, or else, again, this, this, this profession will not be for you. You have to develop that confidence of like, which is not the same as saying that you know, you're never wrong, except not actually it at all. But in your confidence, my confidence comes from knowing that I received a tremendously amazing education. So I, I went to school for this, and then I went to do an internship, and I've learned from tremendous doctors over the course of my years. You, ma'am, have looked on Google. So as much as you think you know more than you, me, you do not. You know more about your pet than me, for sure. You know your pet, and I, I want to honor that experience. But because you don't believe what I'm telling you doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean that I need to change it to, to make you feel more comfortable, you know? Mm -hmm. So you work at Allendale Veterinary Clinic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so since you bought the clinic, it sounds like you didn't even realize, but your um, staff became more diverse, like when you hired, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and now it, it is that. So I was wondering, what are the internal and external benefits of having a diverse staff? So like internally, like, when you guys um, are communicating with each uh, with each other, and then externally, like with the clients, like public facing. Well, you know, I think internally it, it is. I was actually just talking with uh, my manager about this because um, internally there's this sort of like, you know, when you don't even realize you're holding your breath, and then you're like, oh, I've been holding my breath this whole time. It internally feels like this sort of like, oh, this feels <laughs> nice. Like I can relax a little bit more. You know, I can, I don't feel, I think when you're the only one of anything, there's this constant pressure to represent all of that thing, right? Yeah. So when yeah. you're the only woman, when I have to be the best, you know, on behalf of all womankind, if you're the only, you know, black person, if you're the only Latina, if you're the only Jewish person, I have to be the best because I'm going to represent the whole mantle of Jewishhood, you know, <laughs> and it's like unfair <laughs> to anyone, right? And so when you have more people, it also allows you to acknowledge that, yeah, actually we're all different. You know, I work with other black women in my practice. There's, there's four of us. We're all so different. We're all so different, you know? 
we have different interests, different backgrounds, different everything. Um, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be able to give, and, and I think in, in, in having there be more of us, it allows us to all be our true authentic selves. I don't have to be anything but who I am because she can be who she is and she can be who she is. And so I think internally it's been really, really amazing. And it's not something that, you know, as I think talked with you about, it wasn't something that I put an ad out like, hey, black people, apply to my job, <laughs> you know? But it just, it just happened. And I think it goes to that point of visibility, right? You know, it's funny that you mentioned this. I would love to talk to my black employees and say, hey, just curious, did you apply here because I am black? Because I do. I think that they're, you know, um, seeing someone doing what you want to do that looks like you is tremendously, I think, affirming, you know, um, especially if you've never seen that person before do that. Um, so, so internally, it's just, it's incredible. You know, I think um, externally, it's been interesting. I've had, uh, I've had clients comment on the fact that you know since you've taken over the practice it's become so much more diverse and we really really appreciate that um i've also had clients make comments that again is there some is that a microaggression i've had clients say you know make comments to say that like well you know since you've taken over the practice there have been lots of changes um and i don't you know i can i can i can tell you i didn't really make that many changes so <laughs> what changes are they referring to Huh. Who knows, right? But um, they are—they are often, they are always. I'll just say it. They're always uh, older people, and they're always older white people that say that. So you know, again, my my mind goes to uh, is you know what changes are they referring to, and 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 uh, and and because those changes, by the way, they're the implication with them is that they're not good changes, right? That they like you know since you take another practice, we we've, we've not been as happy with X, Y, and Z. But, um, but you know, I, I don't exist to make everyone happy. That's, that's for sure. And, and, uh, you know, I, I exist, my, my goal is to create a hospital with that provides tremendous patient care and medical care that provides a great service. We are for sure a service industry, right? You know, I want to serve my clients. I want to serve my patients and I want to create an environment where my employees feel appreciated and respected and supported. You know, those are, those are my goals. Um, yeah. and I think that, uh, I think I do a pretty good job with those. <laughs> yeah. And it's impossible to make everyone happy. You'll be exhausted. You won't even be like, that's just. And the nice thing about veterinary medicine, especially in this town, is that there are so many options. And I have many times had conversations with people that, you know, where I say to them, like, you know, I just, I don't think this is a good fit for either of us. And I really want you to go and find the clinic that is a good fit for you. Because when you come here and you are constantly disappointed and upset with us, you know, I don't think people are aware of how much of a toll that takes on us as well, because we're actually here trying our hardest to do a great job and to serve them. And when we're, you know, when we're failing repeatedly, it's <laughs> demoralizing, yeah. right? And it's not, some, you know, we, we care. I know people probably don't think, think we do care, but we care so much about, about the, the patients we serve and, and the people that bring them in. And so, uh, so I think it's important to, to find a, a clinic that's a good fit for, for people in that sense. Mm, okay. And you already spoke about mentorship, um, and that's kind of a way to create a space for younger um, people of color to see, oh, this is something I can do. What, what have you done so far in terms of mentorship, or is it like still in the works? Well, I mean, I think so far what I, what I do and what I've always done is um, basically try to be visible with respect to career days and things like that, right? So uh, I have um, a couple of friends who are teachers who will reach out to me when they have career days or 
you know, there's a, the local Jack and Jill chapter. I went to do a fair day with them. So yeah, I try to, first of all, just be, be visible from that sense, especially because a lot of career days tend to involve younger kids. And so the earlier you can start to see this, the better, right? But um, I think more recently, I've decided that there's just really a need to, I think I need to have a more structured and more consistent approach. And so I reached out to some organizations in town to talk with them about mentoring. And then we actually have um, a, uh, a woman who wants to go into veterinary tech school, but is going to start volunteering. And so I think, I think those are the ways in which I realized that because you can be a career, you can go to career day as a veterinarian, right? But, but I think I started to really think about as a veterinary practice owner, I have this actually unique ability to, to really allow people to come into the building. If I can make uh, volunteer programs, I can, I can ha- give people access to this, this career in ways that they wouldn't get otherwise. And which, by the way, is a gatekeeping thing for school. You, to get into veterinary school, you really have to have a certain number of hours of experience. They want you to know that you know what you're doing and what you're getting into. And so by not having access to veterinary clinics, that in itself is a, is a thing that is a, is a reason that a lot of people won't get into school, right? Among other, among other things. By specifically recruiting, you know, people, young people of color to be able to have this early access to veterinary, veterinary medicine, I can, you know, not only get them to realize that it's something they could do, but also help them to be able to achieve that. So I think that's, that's, a, that's the, the real goal going forward. So yeah, so I think mentoring, uh, you know, sort of in my, as a, just as a general sort of adult <laughs> professional person in this town, but also specifically having the, the clinic be a source and a place for people to come and get structured hours and experience they can then apply to other places. And I think the long-term goal would be even maybe like an actual internship, externship, having some sort of after-school job that people can come to for a semester or what have you to gain the experience and maybe even credits, who knows, and then, um, and then go forward and do whatever they'd like to do. And it's not, you know, obviously not everyone's going to want to be a veterinarian, but but that they can see that, um, again, practice ownership, business ownership, be, you know, going to grad school, being a professional is all within their reach for sure. Mm-hmm. What does allyship look like for you personally and professionally? Is that something you've thought about at all? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, allyship starts with listening, right? Because so much of being an ally, in order to be an ally, you have to first understand what it is that that person you want to be an ally to needs, right? And so I think a lot of people might have ideas of what, uh, what people need, right? But, but, um, but actually hearing that from them specifically is, is, is different. So I think for me, uh, it, it'd be first trying to, um, you know, find out what is, what is it that people need. And I think for, for me, um, I would want then people to take that information and share it with, with other people that look like them so that the, so that the burden of education does not always have to be on the person that needs the help, whether it be a person of color, whether it be an LGBTQ person, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, you know, just uh, any, anyone, anyone, it doesn't do that. They, sh- they should not have to be the one teaching everyone about their situation, right? They, they should be, uh, you know, it should be, should be other people. So I think allyship for me looks like, listening and then teaching that you know teaching your community take that take that take what you learned from listening to me and go take it to your people (laughs) it makes me think of like creating an army (laughs) absolutely absolutely yeah no absolutely true like you know you 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 give people the terminology and the vocabulary and then have them go share it you know to their great aunt edna you know or whoever (laughs) people people who by virtue of their um 
community or their choice, you know, wouldn't be exposed, right? You know, it's like if you're, if you're lucky enough to have someone, and I, and I do, I think if you're lucky enough to have someone in your life that you can be an ally to, you know, go and share that information with other people who wouldn't have access to that, someone like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so any closing remarks about just your personal story or creating a more diverse and inclusive veterinary community? Any other closing comments? When I think about my personal story, I am just so grateful because, like I said, there's nothing really about anything yeah, there's just nothing, there was nothing in my life that really sort of predicted this was that I'd end up here, you know, I grew up without animals, I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have, uh, I didn't probably see another black veterinarian until I was in college, you know, so it's like, I, I, it, 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 I'm super appreciative, and, and it also makes me realize that, like, there is so much work that can be done, speaking of being an ally, you know, the, the, the reason I was able to get into vet school is because I had white veterinarians who let me come into their practice to observe, right? So it's like, you can, you know, there's so much that all of us can do to help sort of diversify this field, right? And so um, I, I think about that as, a, as sort of a closing statement in that if anyone's out there listening and, and, and any, or in their, or your, own, or your own profession, you know, it's like, you don't have to be a person of color to help people of color succeed in this, in this environment, right? You don't have to be a person of color to help get more people of color interested in veterinary medicine and, and, and I think what you'll find is, as, as you know, I think there's so much data around this is that if you, if you do, if we can make this profession look more like the rest of the country actually looks, right, then I think our clients will feel more at ease. I think they will feel more connected. I think they will feel more uh, understood by, you know, the people that, that are serving them. And that's, that's ultimately what we should all want. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so great getting to know you more. Thank you for having me and thank you for doing this. It's really been sort of great to kind of think about all this and, and you know, it gets me all very excited too about continuing, continuing the charge and continuing the mission afterwards. So thank you for, for that. That was Dr. Hindatu Mohammed talking about feeling out of place as a black veterinarian, but not letting it deter her from staying the course. She emphasized the importance of having a diverse staff. When the profession reflects the clientele, she believes clients may feel more understood and at ease. She talked about what allyship means to her. She sees allyship as first listening to people of color, finding out what they need, and then educating others on their behalf so they don't bear the burden of educating everyone. She also said one doesn't have to be a person of color to get other people of color interested in veterinary medicine. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. If you're enjoying this podcast, we would love to hear from you. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. We just surpassed our 30-episode milestone, so to commemorate this achievement, we set a goal of getting 30 reviews. We love reading them, and if you have a minute to spare, we would love to read yours too. I may give you a shout out on the next episode. Reviews and ratings expand our reach in search results and help grow our listenership of veterinary professionals. They let Apple know that listeners like you are enjoying the podcast. It makes a difference and we can't thank you enough. And thank you again for listening to this week's episode. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA. Thank you.